0: We had this uh, Olympic Games in 2018 in Korea on a course that at that point no one in the world had ever been. It was still a forest. It wasn't even cut down. And so when we're brainstorming around ideas and thinking where we can gain competitive advantage, well, one clear way would be if we can get more, more reps on the Olympic course. Um, You know, no one's ever been on it. And so it became like almost a fairly obvious decision that you like, well, let's kind of capture some video. We captured video on courses a lot. And with sort of, you know, reading around all of what 360 video and VR was doing, could we capture that in in a little more detail? And so we
1: started there. You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. Hello, welcome to Sports Tech Feed. I'm your host, Tom Salomes. Delighted to have you joining us once again. On today's episode, we have Troy Taylor, Head of High Performance for U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Troy provides strategic and operational leadership to U.S. Ski and Snowboard's sports science, sports technology, sports medicine, and sports education departments. Today, Troy and I discuss how the team integrates technology, including neurocognitive assessments and virtual reality, to solve the unique issues in the inhospitable and ever-changing environment of snow sports. From the nomadic changes in venues chasing the snow around the world from competition to competition, to the changes in run conditions that from day to day and even hour to hour can change how an athlete performs. And as you heard in the opening, sometimes even preparing athletes to perform on ski runs that haven't even been built yet, as was the case with the 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Olympic Games. So the US team went on to win 15 medals, including 7 gold medals, so Troy's obviously doing something right. Uh, we also discuss how US Ski and Snowboard partner with innovative sports technology companies, and the best way to get involved if you have a solution for getting more of their athletes on the podium. As always, you can see show notes and more episodes at Sportstechfeed.com. Also, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or guest suggestions. But now, here is Troy. Enjoy. Hello, Troy Taylor. Uh, welcome to the show. Obviously, head of high performance for US. Ski and snowboard. Great to have you on Sports Tech Feed.
0: Thanks for having me, Thomas.
1: Our pleasure. So, we might just dive straight in with what do you do at, at US Ski and Snowboard? So, head of high performance, obviously a well known title, but what is your day to day?
0: Yeah, at US and Snowboard, I oversee our uh, sports science, sports medicine, and sport education departments, which consists of about 30 people um, across typical sort of physiology, strength and conditioning type of backgrounds, nutrition, psychology, uh, technology, um, and data science side, um, as well as physios, PTs. Um, and doctors, and also on the education side of how do we uh, take that knowledge that we gain with the world's best athletes and a try and uh, help our future Olympians um, by through coach education, club education systems. So I have the great pleasure of working with some awesome individuals uh, that help our athletes do that. So it's not a bad day job.
1: Very cool. Uh, and working across that that broad range of uh, of individuals that are that are just focused on, on getting the best out of these world-class athletes, these incremental gains or or bigger than incremental gains. What role does technology play in that?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I think the fundamentals of, of elite sport, regardless of what it is, comes down to, you know, effective practice, dedicated people, great coaching and environments, and, and, and that's your, your sort of base layers. I think for us, technology plays multiple roles, um, from one, equipment, uh, is, a, is a big piece of ours so you know from the suits that our athletes wear to the waxes that they use to the skis that they're on um, through to the way that we train um, and try and help our our coaches and our athletes assisted through technology uh, whether that's through sort of you know data feedback or video replays uh, things like that so it's a pretty instrumental part of that side um, and the other big piece for us is around injury prevention mitigation is probably a more appropriate term but trying to mitigate some of those injuries and then re- Rehabbing our our athletes, technology, particularly things like force plates, play a big role in our ability to help our athletes uh, stay healthy. And when they do, unfortunately, get injured, uh, come back and hopefully stay robust enough to to make it through the season. So, pretty integral part of our uh, operation.
1: Yeah, definitely, and it's something to your to your first point. Um, one of the few sports that technology is is inherent in everything that's done. I mean, no one's out there. Um, running around in the snow, there's there's always something attached to the athlete. That uh, in terms of of a ski, a snowboard, sorry, that sounds obvious. It's in the title, uh, but in terms of the technology advances that have come through that, when it was from alpine skiing, what was literally two bits of uh, pine strapped to your feet, um, to now that you have incredible different materials, the flex, the bend, you know, the blade edge. Um, what goes into that, the binding, how it's connected into the athlete. Um, obviously a huge part of that. Uh, is that something that you work with say manufacturers on that side, or is it more, you kind of have a set of tools available in terms of equipment, and then you work to get the best out of those, those tools?
0: Yeah, it, it varies a little depending on the athlete, the sport, the manufacturer. Some we have closer links with than others where we'll help um, almost in some R&D, small pieces of that, um, to help them sort of design and develop some pieces. I would say most of what our work is done is more around testing the effectiveness of the various technologies that using and trying to find the optimal um, setup for our athletes. We're in this, you know, ever-changing environment. Um, it snows very different to with icy conditions. Um, the sun's out, the sun's in. It's warm it's cold all of those affect the equipment quite uh, significantly um, and so yeah most of the roles that you that know ski and snowboard and primarily this is our coaches and techs um, but the high performance department assists them with is sort of monitoring how those skis are performing as best we can um, so we can make more informed decisions um, we have this you know really kind of wild environment where we're, we're nomadic for a lot of our time. So, you know, we, we're we constantly chasing the snow. Um, and so you don't have a stadium that you can set up an instrument um, or something like that. And so it becomes a, a little more tricky to get some of that data. But that's certainly the goal for us to, to capture data and, and help make informed decisions.
1: Yeah, there's no such thing as normal conditions. Unfortunately not. I wish.
0: Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, definite, definitely changing. And even within, within a day, within a run, you know, uh, between, you know, the first person starting down an alpine run and the last person, there could be a couple of hours between there. And you can imagine the sun's out, the sun's in, cloud cover, visibility changes, temperature changes. So that all changes, you know, the equipment that they use, the, tinted their goggles um you know the the humidity of the the pressure so everything kind of changes around that so it becomes a a little bit of a challenge for sure
1: i can imagine so that's obviously that a huge part there and and then something that's very classic to all sports and high performance is as you said the training preparation and then i guess pre and post in terms of injury prevention and mitigation what kind of tools do you use for that area of uh of getting your athletes the best out of your athletes
0: yeah we run a a, a fairly well established i would say athlete monitoring and assessment program for so each of the each of the sports that we oversee and we are this almost an amalgamation so you've got everything from alpine skiing to snowboarding to freestyle to cross country so so very different sports within their unique nature but we have a fairly robust assessment profiles that it's fairly typical in its, uh, nature, I'd say physiological testing, bike related testing, uh, VO2s, uh, that type of stuff. Uh, we run a lot of bilateral force plate assessments, uh, through Vlad Forstex. Um, and so we've been doing that or at least forced assessments for about 20 years so we put up a decent profile of databasing um, of both from performance side of what's what's the thresholds needed to perform um, and also uh, some some indications of when we're more likely to be at risk of injury um, one of the things about sliding down snow at 80 miles an hour or you know landing on snow from 60 feet is I don't think we're in the injury prevention business you you, you know there's some things that are going to happen um, if i Unfortunately, if you athletes uh, go into a fence at those speeds, um, but as best we can, we can sort of. I think there are some of them that were preventable, um, and those are certainly the ones that we we assess around that. So that's that's a big piece of it. Um, we use things like push bands or um, gym awares um, from force measurements and that that type of stuff in the gym um and so that those i would say were the, the the basics or the core part of the program from an athlete training standpoint we're also big on the rehab side or more neurocognitive training um, so we integrate things like virtual reality into our rehabilitation programs. programs um, that's been a really big advancement for us um, as well as a lot of other light stimulation or, or
1: yeah so could you speak that a little bit more i mean the, the four steps we so you that's the pressure plates that that athletes jump on. And then you, you measure that. So in terms of the physical performance, and that's very classic, that's the same that you would use in say the NFL or, or the NBA. Um, can you speak a little bit more to that VR virtual reality neurocognitive assessment and, and, and how that's, I guess, being used in injury in coming back from injury, but in also preparation for races?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I guess I'd I'll, I'll say how we first got into VR as a whole and then sort of, sort of elaborate from there. But um, essentially, when I came back to the organization in 2015, um, and I think VR in sports or 360 video is technically uh, more of the correct term because we capture root live video, was just taking off in the NFL. Um, you know, Striver out of Stanford was just starting up. Um, there has been a few papers about them, you know, press articles and things like that. And so, you know, we had this uh, Olympic Games in 2018 in Korea on a course that at that point no one in the world had ever been. It was still a forest. It wasn't even cut down. And so you know, when we're brainstorming around ideas and thinking where we can gain competitive advantage, well, one clear way would be if we can get more more reps on the Olympic course. Um, you know, no one's ever been on it. We would get to go on it in February 2016 for the men, in February 2017 for the women, and then race on it in 2018. And so it became like almost a fairly obvious decision that you like, well, let's kind of capture some video. We captured video on courses a lot. And with sort of, you know, reading around all of what 360 video and VR was doing, could we capture that in, in a little more detail? And so we started there, um, captured the the first course, uh, partnered with Striver in that, in that um, adventure Um, in January, February of 2016 at the Olympic test event, started using that video, showed it to a bunch of athletes and coaches through a headset. um, and And everyone's like, this makes a ton of sense. It it, it gives me a a depth and a, and a perception that I don't get from flat video from just watching on a computer or a TV screen, and so from there we really iterated, started you know bought ourselves about six or ten 360 cameras of varying quality and and price point and and usability from you know things that you know took us you know a few hours to stitch together, a few to here's a sim card, take it out, stick it into a headset, and away you go. And so iterated quite a lot there, um, and now use it fairly frequently with a lot of our athletes and a lot of our teams speeding uh to run through a lot of the courses uh, just on the regular world cup as well as major games and so that's become a fairly i would say standard part of our operation over the last two or three years specifically relating related to the injury rehab side um, we unfortunately have really high injury rates um you know Uh, in the, between 2010 and 2014 Olympic Games, uh, we averaged about 35 season-ending injuries for our organization. We have 200 athletes. So you're talking, you know, 15-ish percent. Um, injury rates season ending most of those are ACL knee related injuries um, we managed to reduce that between 2014 and 2018 down to just over just over 20 so sort of a third reduction um, but that's still 20 athletes dreams that are not going to come true um, at least that year as they're, as they're rehabbing and so we become very um, akin to how accurately can rehab as well as these high injury rates first time we also have high secondary injury rates so re-injury rates uh, of athletes within within a one to two year period
1: and that's and so the whole idea is that, that something yeah, that every
0: injury is a is a brain injury and this idea is that, that just
1: something that's not going to come out of the sport as you mentioned um you know going down going down a hill at 80 miles an hour um going 60 feet in the air is it, is it just something that uh, the human body is only trained to do so much that it's just an accepted I, fact there are always going to be
0: injuries in our sport and they're probably going to be higher than most non-contact sports um, I think that's probably standard. But I, I think if, you know, in the last eight years, we've gone from, you know, over 30 injuries to just over 20. Do I think we can get down to closer to 10? I absolutely do think we can. And there's, you know, a research evidence body that us and others contribute to. Um, you know, there's some basic protective stuff. Being strong helps, it for sure does. Um, particularly in in some of our sports where some of the athletes, you know, uh, let's say free skiing. Um, you know, the world's best free skiers are typically 16 to 24 years old Uh, a lot of them grew up on mountain you know parkside haven't had the physical training uh, that would be a traditional sport might have had Um, and so they can do amazing twisting flipping spinning and you know world best at their sport but their training age from a physical robustness standpoint is relatively small and so there's definitely pieces we can do around that Um, and I think we've been effective over the last few years of of sort of putting strategies in places to do that Um, I also think uh, in alpine skiing particularly uh, there's research that says about 50% of the injuries happen in the last 25% of the race, um, which suggests that there's a strong fatigue element doesn't associated at least um, with that. So I think there's a physical fitness standpoint that, that plays to it. And then these re-injury rates, you know, there's definitely much higher re-injury rates um, than there are in other sports, you know, depending on the country. And as um, uh, you're talking 25 to 50% re-injury rates. Um, And I think that's where the brain training comes in, the neurocognitive training, uh, creating, you know, these much more uh, realistic training environments much earlier. You know, typical physio type appointments, um, you know, you imagine lay person goes in sees their physio um you know maybe post post acl surgery um they'll be lying on the bed maybe doing you know quad contractions and and the first person that every person every everyone does is they look at their quad to contract it and you look at and look at but when you're skiing you or doing sport you never look at your quad um and so how can we take vestibular system out of that um, that's how we come to vr or come into reaction time training or other neurocognitive ways that we can do that and so i think we've been quite effective in that and we're seeing that in actually some of the force data later seeing re- rate of force development return quicker not perfectly but getting quicker uh coming back and so i think there's, there are elements we can definitely do and technology plays a piece of that along with really skilled you know physical therapists and, and dedicated athletes
1: yeah definitely well that's that's some interesting stuff so really that visualization piece not just what you would classically think of uh say an f1 driver going this turn that turn this turn same as a say a slalom skier or um you know maybe even a free skier moguls whatever that is the visualization of i've got to take this turn and take that it's it's more than that it's taking to the next level of well at this point i need to activate my muscles or my core or, or lean on this or that really, it has a physiological response to the mental stimulus.
0: Yeah, absolutely, We'd, for sure. There's there's an aspect that's learning the course that we do all the time, and you know, this turn after that turn, it's a double left footer, and then it's wide, it's a pitch. For sure, there's that pitch. But yeah, no, in the rehab side, uh, it's a lot around uh, you know those connections, that neurocognitive. Um, stimulation and being able to learn to load up patterns without necessarily having your um, your eyesight as your key guider um, and taking a lot of that out, which has been yeah. There's a there's a ton of research. There's a guy uh, Dustin Grooms, um, I think out of I want to say University of Ohio maybe, um, but he's a, a lecturer, and a PhD in a in athletic trainer in this particular area, and it's it's truly fascinating. You see uh, you know brain scans when you're watching a, a VR video. Um, And it looks exactly the same as the brain scans of when you're doing the real thing. Um, And so you can, for sure, train aspects of your sport through that or rehab through that.
1: Very cool. So when you had that idea, you mentioned, okay, we're not going to be able to get on this Korean course. We need a way, an innovation, a breakthrough to help us with this, which is classic, classic innovation, problem. We need a solution. All right. Then... There's a technology solution for that. How did you do that third part where you actually went out and found that technology solution? Is it is it that people are coming to you with all these different, pitching you different uh, products? Or is it you kind of have a dedicated focus on, on what you want to find?
0: Yeah, I, I think we've had it come both ways. Um, I would think we're more successful when we've identified a problem. Um, and I cold called Striver in that instance. So I picked up the phone um you know probably three or four times before they actually accepted accepted my phone call um and were very gracious to help us out but yeah i think we're more successful um when we've identified a particular problem that we have a particular challenge i, I get somewhere between you know five and fifty calls a week from various people that are gonna you know help me develop more more olympic gold medalists and, and x y and z most of them um you know there can be fine solutions but they don't really solve a problem that i have or my athletes have and so while there's some that do uh for the vast majority we're better when we've self-identified where our challenge and opportunities are and then go and try and source it and we tend to do that by like you know normally Trying to call two, three, four companies, um, figuring out um, you know who might be the best in this space. If there's a you know a clear leader, a clear market, then th- then that's an easier decision. But most of the stuff where we're going to gain even competitive advantage for a year or two is being the first mover, and that generally you know requires us figuring out okay, there's probably three or four companies that might be in this space that might do something similar. Which one can we strike a relationship with? Um, You know, we're non-government funded. We're a a non-profit. And so finances play a role in that and their ability to help. And also which ones, you know, can customize their product or want to customize it to fit our need. And so we we play a few hands at the poker table, I guess, in in terms of thinking that, seeing which ones are going to come up and, and then sort of, partner with them for the longer term
1: and so if, if it is one of those companies that you know, obviously not pitching you in, the, in that sense but you've reached out to them these four companies what would be your advice for those companies to best um, partner with with your skin snowboard is it that customization piece obviously we're just assuming that the thing does what it says it's going to do on the box and it works the product works um, but the next step is for those companies which i assume some of uh, startups and early stage companies if they are at this kind of cutting edge what's your advice to them
0: yeah i I wouldn't say it's taken as read that that they all do what they say on the tin um i've uh, we have a fair few i'm actually looking at one that will remain nameless on my desk right now but says it can do x y and z but you know we've we've been trying it for for two two days now with some staffing it's a a wearable technology and I'll leave it there. But like it we can't get decent data out of it. And so I do think there's there's some of that of just figuring out where is it? Is this a almost a university level stage project or is this a viable commercial startup product? And I there's there's definitely a range of them between between there. Them and so I think you have to do some testing testing of that pieces. Um for us it's about, you know, having good people that are going to listen to what our particular challenges are and help us solve them specifically rather than just trying to do you know a brand association most of these deals have some sort of sponsorship or partnership marketing relationship which is fine because the, you know the company needs to get a return out of it but it's actually you know it, it needs to be a deeper thing than that so the, the people behind it need to listen to the challenges that we have um, and be able to either sort of Um, adapt or or tweak their product to to make that work. Um, I think, you know, anyone that's in this space, it's got to solve the problems that, that sport has. It needs to have some sort of mechanism of, of, of validity you know, at heart we're scientists um, for a lot of us and so we have to have some while I'm all about the belief effect and placebos that's great but that's not something I'm going to invest a ton of time in I'm not going to break those belief effects if athletes have them in a particular let's say nutritional supplement or, or some sort of uh, special routine then that's fine but that's not something I'm going to invest uh, US ski and snowboards time and resources in so some underlying mechanism of why and how this might work um, you know, how it's safe um you know, we've done some stuff in brain stimulation uh, a few years ago, and so that was definitely a big question for us uh is you know transcranial direct current stimulation safe? It turns out it is, but but the company needed to show me the evidence that 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 was uh safe and then you know, I think having having some sort of referrals or, or proof of concept with with other people in the industry is always good for us. so those are some of the ways I think would be would be how to get in and then, yeah. Be willing to give it a shot. We'll try most things that, that make it through a base, fairly basic checklist. We'll, we'll at least put it on staff and, and if it works on them, some, some of our lower level uh,
1: developmental athletes
0: and give it a try. We're pretty uh, uh, experimental in that sense.
1: Yeah. So the, the guinea pig on the staff and then, and then once you've, uh, you've put it through the staff, you can make sure you're not, uh, you're not risking it on an athlete.
0: Partic- particularly on the stuff that you know doesn't look a little little like it might be unsafe no <laughs> the stuff the staff are pretty good there's uh, they' definitely train a fair amount there's some good skiers in there so they're, they're a good uh, subject matter resource for us
1: yeah definitely and they they would know as well what they're looking for uh, in terms of the product and if it's going to work so that's that's an interesting point that you made there around um, that it may not do what it says it's going to on, on the box. Um, something that I've, I've heard feedback from, uh, from Olympic teams, both at a national organizing committee um, and then also teams is that because there's the cyclical nature of the Olympics, for instance, um, they'll get brand partnerships. They'll have someone say, I've got this amazing product. It's going to do all these amazing things. You give us your your brand on it. Um, you kind of give us the seal. We'll do all this stuff for you. And then as soon as that that year's Olympics is over, um, they're gone. They've got they've got their little thing they can put on their uh, on their pitch deck or on their website in terms of um, the Olympic rings. Uh, but then there's no ongoing relationships, and that's that's burnt. That's burnt some some quite powerful people. Um, that are working in, in elite performance. So, is that something that you you kind of think on for an ongoing partnership? And do you think that's true? I think it's it's definitely
0: happened. Not currently in in any of my current partners and sponsors and those types of things. But for certainly in the past, I think it's something where actually uh, where people like myself, high performance departments, need to have real close relationships with their marketing teams uh, to be able to sort of. Uh, steer them clear of some of the uh, less reputable or, or maybe overclaiming claiming companies, um, and then to jump on maybe some that are going to give us slightly less marketing dollars but have an exponential increased value for, for a high-performance team or for the athletes. And so I think it's really important you actually build those relationships uh, with your marketing team. So, you know, the contract's not signed and you've got it sitting on your desk and, you know, a film crew turning up in a week uh, when you when you don't want to use it. And so that's something that, you know, over the last, I guess, 10 or so years of being in more senior roles. That, that I've definitely noticed, um, and, and something that we 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 work on fairly frequently. Um, my innovation list uh, of the you know the next big projects of what we're going to be working on, or where, where we'd like to be, or what I think is happening next in the space. My my marketing team actually has a copy of that, um, so if they come across something kind of things, so they can kind of start start bringing that into their ideas. If they're talking to us say a technology partner, um, as a as a sort of you know an understanding of where we're going, or if someone comes across their desk that doesn't across come across mine, they can say. But yes, this is, this is on the hit list or it's not. And if it's not, it doesn't mean that we're not necessarily interested. It's just we haven't identified that yet.
1: Very interesting. So working closely with those teams is obviously integral because that also feeds into um, your budget, which is essentially, as an organization, money doesn't grow on trees. It's not, it's not raining cash. Um, and another lesson for those companies is when you're pitching, don't think sports have all this money, especially the, the high-performance areas. Uh, because they've also only got so much time in terms of tools. That's, that's another point that um, quite a few people make to me, that um, it's an amazing new tool. It's great. Um, it'll, it'll take up five hours of coaching time a week, and you go, okay, cool, they're going to roll that across all their athletes. Like The real estate is only so limited in terms of coaching time, in terms of, of budget, in terms of that. So you kind of need to understand where you fit in the food chain um, and be respectful of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that ease of use piece is is definitely
0: underestimated, and and you know more technology. Uh, um, yeah, you could name any of the big systems, but it, you almost have to buy a staff member when you buy the unit, right? Uh, it's it's more more sort of that wasn't the I, when I started in sports I'm going to sound old now but when I started in sports science like it was much more like Excel you paid the license one time and then the operator uses to understand it more often than not these these larger technologies whether it's you know let's say a wearable technology or computer vision related stuff you're almost having a dedicated staff member an athlete management system um, even something like Force decks or kind of things you may not need a dedicated staff member but you're certainly going to need some people that are sort of more upskilled than others in those particular areas. And so uh, that becomes a a really, really key point because there are only so many hours in the day um, and so the ability to integrate that into our flow and into our work, and 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 not have to hire another staff member just for a piece of technology is essential. Um, you know, as a as a national governing body, as an Olympic sport rather than a professional sport, um, yet yeah, budgets are budgets are super tight. Um, you know, we're a relatively large national governing body. We we we're fortunate that our athletes do an amazing job at the Olympic Games and and win you know a, a big chunk of Team USA's medals, which which definitely helps on the funding element. But there's really expensive sport, um, you've got to ship, you know, a couple of hundred pairs of skis to New Zealand and to South America and, you know, have a hundred or so coaches on staff. There's there's a lot of places for that resource to go. So um, yeah, yeah, money is uh, definitely a, a key aspect of, of that. And that's why most of our relationships become more of a, a marketing sponsorship spin um, rather than necessarily as being a paying client per se. And my understanding from colleagues in pro sports, you know. It, while some some of them do have bigger budgets for sure, and there's there's money. Just because someone's you know making X players making X million dollar contract doesn't mean the high performance budget is is always exactly the same. Um, and I think uh, maybe some of the the earlier stage startups necessarily don't understand that reality, um, and so they think there may be an opportunity to make a business model out that might not exist.
1: Yeah, definitely, that's good advice. Because the 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 other thing is that the brand value of a say a NFL team or a English Premier League team, the brand value, you say Manchester United is worth this many billions, Dallas Cowboys are $4.6 billion. That doesn't mean, that doesn't translate to they have this much money. You know, that that's a lot of that is brand equity. Obviously you can look at their revenues and kind of dive into their financials more. But um, as you say, when you're paying, you're paying the talent is probably your biggest, uh, your biggest expense there. Um, so stadium lease, whatever else it is, that's some very big eye-watering numbers. Um, but it doesn't translate across the board. So I think being uh, willing to, to properly partner um, and not just do their we'll just give you a, give you an off the shelf solution and then you'll slap your logo on our website. And um, the partnership is, is really where both sides can get the most out of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, obviously the brand value from the from the company side is is important and the association is important but the, you know I think the real the real advantage of partnering with elite sport is you know in my team I have 30 people that are dedicated to helping skiers and snowboarders get better we've got now i don't know hundreds of years of experience in skiing and snowboarding of how to do that and so you know you start building that and you can build this institutional knowledge within your company of the space that you want to be in which is far more valuable than you know. A, a relatively small contract um, or supplier supplier deal in that kind of sense. And I think that's where the real value. If if companies from both sides are willing to do it, because I think there can be you know expertise uh, upskilling from both sides um, that becomes almost invaluable, and that's where we get the the most
1: most out of it for sure. So to go back earlier to you, you said you've got a list of innovations that you want to target without giving away trade secrets that are gonna. You know. The Canad those 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 dodgy Canadians up north, are they are they I assume they're one of your biggest rivals? Is it is it US Canadians they'd be uh, and then some of the Nordic countries without uh yeah, particularly in Snow Snow Yeah, without uh without giving them all the secrets away. Can you can you share what your next big innovation projects are or what you're on the lookout for, what what you would give you that next edge?
0: Yeah, I'll keep Some things close to my chest, but most of the stuff, we're, you know, it's a relatively small world. I used to work in Canada, or I I know my equivalent from Norway fairly well. And so, so we we, we have a, there's, there's really not that many, um, you know, cutting edge secrets that are miles apart. I think because, um... Because of some of the challenges with snow sports, um, particularly, you know, no stadiums to instrument, um, you know, constantly nomadic, you know, in one week in Austria, the next weekend in Norway, you know, a week later in China, um, things like that. Uh, definitely has some challenges. The cold weather has some challenges um, and battery lives. And, you know, it's not like there's a ton of power resources. Um, you can't just plug in uh, three quarters of the way up the mountain exactly where you want. And so, so I think, I think, my, that's my long way of saying is that actually, I think, I think the next innovations are actually just applications of existing technologies um, that are in other sports that haven't made it to skiing and snowboarding at the end very well. I think pretty much every uh, skiing and snowboarding country has, um, let's say, played around in the wearable space, GPS, IMUs, you know, wear, wearable tracking to to both do load monitoring um, and also do uh, more sort of technical analysis. Um, but I don't, you know, there's There's a couple of countries that are a little further ahead than others, but I still think there's a massive market and opportunity for pretty much all countries there. Um, When you're watching, let's say, alpine ski racing, um, you're watching Michaela Schiffrin. It's a downhill race. It's two minutes long, uh, two-mile course. Um, All the fan at home would get would be, say, two or three splits and a speed gun maybe. Um, All the US Olympic team or any Olympic team gets virtually is two or three splits and a speed gun uh, the level of performance in that a ton of video but the actual level of quantifiable performance analysis is still relatively low in training and in competition. Um, and so I think wearable technology and ease of use is there is, is going to be within the next, let's say year to 18 months, maybe two years, you're going to see more, more pop up. There's a few consumer level startups that are in that space. There's a few projects with, from national teams that are in that space. And I, I think something's going to pop up there and become, uh, quite an industry standard, both at the elite end and, um, in the development pipelines, you know, you, wouldn't you love to know uh, what Michaela Schifrin did when she was twelve years old? Um, that developmental pathway and understand what those progressions were. Uh, those those are the types of things where I think wearable technology would be super useful. Um, so that's to, I would say relatively low hanging fruit and relatively near, but not currently, you know, being in all that you well
1: used. Um, so, yep. So building that, uh, building out that existing technology it's quite uh standard in other sports as you mentioned gps um some of the other wearable tech uh but making sure it can meet the conditions on the mountain so cold windy no power put through also put through its paces in terms of um in terms of g-force and it is a sport say alpine skiing you are you know you're trying to be as as streamlined as possible um for, for resistance not as, not as much of a thing in, say, big air trick, it's, it's all about how steezy you look, uh, rather than wearing the skin tight spider suits. Um, and a question on that, is there something that computer vision can't do with the attire that a skier or snowboarder wears? So obviously we're talking about computer vision in terms of managing, measuring angles, um, understanding, okay, body position, things like that, posture. Short of everyone having to wear zoot suits, skin tight, um, is it something that you just can't solve with, with computer vision? Therefore, you need to stick with wearables. I think it's it's a little different in different sports. I think in
0: in alpine skiing, wearing lycra, computer vision definitely has a role to play, and, and that would have been next on my list of things to do. The course length is even in training, make constant video a little challenge. Um, you know how do you take shoot video over a two-mile training course you know it's a lot of coaches with a lot of handheld cameras and we do a lot of that but but things so i think computer vision can do a piece of that um once you get into 3d spinning uh particularly with some baggy outfits um you know wearing light career in say big air is not going to up the stokeness. um not no one's going to be really into into wearing light So
1: um it definitely has some challenges. I think three D spinning. action. yeah. I don't think has anyone floated it with uh with Sean White. Yeah. I can't. I can't imagine Sean um in his heyday just deciding to don the lycra.
0: No, I can't. I can't imagine too too many of them. There's actually a funny story. I, I, I won't digress for too long. But in the uh, 2006 uh, Olympics in Torino um in snowboard cross, so that's like pack racing. Um, in Snowboard Cross. So they all start at the same time and then it's sort of a a race to the finish. That's amazing. And there is no rule in there that says you can't wear Lycra. You you can't wear a speed suit. But it's been the unofficial rule that no one does it. And and everyone was like, well, you know, the French or the Canadians, they're going to break this gentleman's handshake that no one wears a speed suit because yeah, if you wear a speed suit you're going to go two to five seconds faster you're going to be an Olympic gold medalist if you don the lycra or not and and I remember being in the six uh, games and we had a bunch of speed suits and we were not going to be the first to wear them there's no way we were going to break it but if someone else did then we were going to put them on because we didn't want to give up Olympic gold medals um, and thankfully no one has and the, the rule still exists that you could wear a speed suit uh, but still no one has uh, you know 13 years 14 years later now so Oh, um, yeah I definitely think there's no Lycra coming into any of those sports anytime soon, and so that does pre- prevent ch- that does cause challenges uh for computer vision uh also the spinning the the nature of the spins you know Uh, Chris Corning, uh, a big air in Atlanta last month, I think did five spins. Um, That's tough for computer vision, um, particularly off-axis related stuff. I think it will get there. Um, And and actually the Olympic Committee uh, has uh, doing some work, some really good work in in that space, starting with, um, say, sports like diving, which are a little easier, a little more controlled. Um, But I think there's definitely opportunities where they will get there, but not right now. And I think the the baggy clothing will... um, be constantly challenging so wearables provides us a good opportunity there and wearables also provides us an opportunity that we don't have to have coaches shooting video around i really want my coaches to be coaching um you know and, and right now a ton of them you know they spend half their life shooting video editing video and then feeding back video and, and it's a very um labor intensive process and so while we we want to do that sometimes i don't want to have to be reliant on capturing i missed that run in video therefore i've got no data off of what happened and so wearables become a bit more passive for me um whereas say basketball setting up an instrumented um you know a court with cameras is super easy and you just let them run and play and go uh ours is a little more manual Auto-tracking cameras may solve that eventually, uh, but they're not keeping up with this quite. And also the... We, we move a little fast and have too many uh, vertical...
1: Yeah, well, I was going to say the uh, infrastructure spend that goes with that. And so in terms of decking out a, a basketball court, we had a few um, few different guests on the show. So we had Davian Ross from Shot Tracker and Bertro Rogetti from Atrium Sports, and they'll go in and, and do a setup of a basketball court, but then that basketball court is set, and it's a very clearly defined... Um, you don't have to worry about uh, it getting battered by a snowstorm and then it's only you know it's on the training regime but next week you're on a different course the week after you're on a different course it might be 6 months until you come back around um, and you're back in that same environment
0: yeah it'd be it would be easier if we just had one location we we i I'd be so bored wouldn't know what to do
1: yeah well that's the that's the, that's the part of it i'm and en- envious on occasions when you're just there, you're freezing on the side of a mountain, just going, why, why can't we do this? Why can't we, why can't we do this indoors? What's going on? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. You got frostbite on every finger and every toe. You're, you know, you've taken seven replacement batteries because you know none of them are going to last for very long. Yeah, been that's it's been my life for
1: a long time. Well, I'm sure you wouldn't change it for anything. So. Well, final question for you, Troy. Thank you so much for, for sharing uh, your knowledge uh, on the episode. What's your favourite sporting moment of all time? So my favourite sporting moment of all time. What's the all-time great? It can be in oh. any sport. It can be involving you. It can not be involving you. It can be uh, something you did in under-12s in, in in your glory years. I don't know. Maybe it's... Rugby, cricket, skiing, snowboarding, checkers, chess.
0: No, when I was I was ten years old, I hit no this banana shot. No, um, no, but quite clearly, it was actually at the Pyeongchang 2018 Olympic Games. Um, we came into our cross-country team came into that uh, uh, world champ. Oh, sorry, that Olympics of of being in strong contention for a medal. Uh we hadn't, US pre-2018, pre- had only won one cross-country medal in the entire history of our organization, 1976, Bill Cock. Um So we hadn't won a medal, you know, only won one in a history, hadn't won one for, you know, 40 years um, and we came in with a really strong team uh, Jesse Diggins Keegan Rag and Sophie Sadie our, our women's team uh, was ranked you know top 5 in the world across multiple events um, and we go in the games um, first event uh, you know Jesse comes I think 5th uh, they get, there's, you know, a whole bunch of races, uh, cross country skiers or probably compete three to five times in Olympic games. And so, you know, they come in first race, fifth, second race, fifth, third race, fifth, um, you know, a whole bunch of, that was almost best ever women's result, amazing performances, you know, really close to the podium, but not on it. And then I think second from last day of the Olympic games was the, um, sprint relay, Um, uh, Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall. uh, Keegan, five-time Olympian. Uh, She gave birth to uh, in 2017, come back clearly her last Olympics, said she was retiring afterwards. Um, And Basically just uh, came down to the last 100 metres of the race and uh, Jesse overtook an Olympic gold medalist. I think it was uh, Kala from S- Sweden uh, to win US first Olympic gold medal in cross-country skiing, a gold medal. Um, and it was incredible to be there, but to see so many of their um, competitors uh, from our own country, from other countries, everyone was celebrating that these two two people or, and that team had won an Olympic gold medal. It was uh, tear-jerking, um, and so yeah, it was uh, very very special. So that's definitely my favourite Olympic or sporting moment so far. Looking forward to more in the future, though.
1: Yes, yes. First of many to come uh, in, the, in the cross country, and I'm sure uh, across the the Winter Olympics.
0: Yes, fingers crossed. I'm
1: confident. Well, thank you so much, Troy. I really appreciate sharing your knowledge, as I said. Uh, We'll uh, put some links in the show notes to a a few of the things you've talked about, including um, that Olympic, cross-country Olympic gold. Um, See if we can get some footage of that last 100-metre sprint to the finish uh, so people can relive it at home. And uh, if you've got any other questions for Troy, I'll also include a link to Troy's LinkedIn um, and the website so um, people can reach out if they have that. And maybe some startups that have gleaned a few things on how to actually add value to to the organization.
0: For sure. If you if you can help get uh help get US ski and snowboard athletes on podiums, we'd definitely like to at least talk to you for sure. Thanks for having me on, Thomas.
1: Thanks, mate. Bye.
0: Appreciate it. Bye.
1: There you have it. Troy Taylor from US Ski and Snowboard. Very interesting chat. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did thought it was very interesting points that Troy made around uh, how best to work with uh, US Ski and Snowboard and other Olympic teams. So if you are a sports tech entrepreneur or an established player in the industry, all about understanding their requirements, uh, including budget restrictions. But if you do form a true partnership, then it's definitely mutual benefits. And I've got to say that there's, there's no greater brand than, um, than an Olympic team that you can, can show that you're working with uh, in terms of elite performance. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, sportstechfeed.com for show notes. uh, So, some links to a few of the things that Troy mentioned, including uh, details of your LinkedIn if you'd like to reach out directly. On next week's episode, we have Dr. Helen Sun, Chief Technology Officer of Stats Perform. Obviously, one of the biggest data providers in the world for sports data. And Helen will be speaking to artificial intelligence. So, a very buzzword, uh, heavy session but actually really insightful in terms of cutting through that talking about what the actual impact of ai will be on the way fans and and coaches and also athletes engage with sports until next week i've been your host thomas loams looking forward to joining you once again